When did it become breaking a rule to say your name out loud in school? When your name's the only one that sets us free? When did it become incorrect to speak the truth about life and death? When your life gave us all eternity. First Peter chapter one. So this is Peter, the apostle, and he's uh, he's laying it down pretty pretty well here. First Peter one one. It says uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now that's the opening of this letter. And you could teach an entire teaching on that. It's really spectacular. So he's uh, Peter is, is addressing those who are scattered. These are known as the diaspora, dispersed, we get the word from, it's Greek. It's a scattering, and what this is talking about is Israel, when Israel was conquered and scattered. These areas, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, are provinces in either Greece or the Turkish peninsula, which is right next door, okay? And the peninsula of Greece is known in the ancient days as Asia Minor, and the Turkish Peninsula was known as Asia. Now, most of the time we think of Asia as being the far east, right? The Orient. But in these times, Asia was this, you know, we had Asia Minor and Asia, and these are these two areas, okay? So when you read in scripture, or even if you read in history about Asia, you need to check your thinking on it because it's probably not talking about the far east, uh, the Far East was very, uh, there was very little known for a long time about the Far East. But Asia, you have the, the Byzantine Empire, which was the eastern part of the Roman Empire, was in Asia. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, so we have these areas. And so this diaspora, these people, these, the Israelites were moved through Asia, Asia Minor. So Peter's writing to them. Right. Instead of a city, he's writing to a lot of places, you know, and he talks about the sanctifying work of the spirit and the sprinkling of blood. And those are basically the same concept here. What we're talking about here is that in the Old Testament, they had a they had commandments written to men, but it was external and man could never live up to those commandments because he didn't have the stuff on the inside to empower him to do that. He, he had on the inside nothing but the flesh. But in this period of time that we live as Christians, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. One of the great works of the Holy Spirit is this sanctifying work, that God is at work within you to make you holy, to make you holy. That's the objective here, to go from unholiness to holiness. And that, that spirit is always at work. It's always at work. So this notion of holiness has two aspects of it. We'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit here. But the way man's religion typically works is either he will deny that inner sanctifying work of the Spirit, 
and try to modify the outward man, right? He'll deny it and say, no, this is all about behavior. You need to say the right things. You need to look the right way. You need to do all these things on the external. Or on the other side of the spectrum, we have people who, you know, churches that talk about, um, you know, it's just grace. It's grace. It's grace. We've talked about that in this fellowship that, you know, we call it cheap grace. There's actually a word that's associated with cheap grace. It's called antinomialism. It's uh, actually uh, the antinomiums was, were a sect back in the 1500s, and they taught that since there was this inner spirit, we are released from the obligations of the law, and we have no obligations, that we are set free and there are no obligations. Well, that's just not the truth. Because what does it say here? It says to obedience to Jesus Christ. So while we've been set free from the law, we haven't been set free from obligations of obedience. We have this inside working of the Holy Spirit, and we have this obligation to obey Jesus Christ. Does that make sense, everybody? There is an obedience. There is an expectation. And if you don't obey Jesus Christ, what does that mean? Sin. That's sin. So we we haven't been delivered from, you know, the obligations of the word, of doing the word. It's just our obligations are a little different. I say a little, they're a lot different from the Old Testament. So that's how that worked. Look in verse 3, it says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to him. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We looked at that uh, during the WWF, right? The gospel, that Jesus Christ had to be resurrected from the dead. If Jesus Christ was not resurrected from the dead, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? You are still in your sins. And all those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're lost. But then what does Paul say? But now Christ is raised. Christ is raised. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the premise upon which Christianity is built. You can't have Christianity without resurrection, okay? Important point there. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So we have new birth. We have a living hope. We have Christ's resurrection from the dead. We have our imperishable inheritance. I think that's interesting, right? The effort that Peter went into of saying, look, your inheritance, it's there, right? And we can take that a step further. That, That means that our sonship is secure. There are people out there, Christians, who want you to believe that you could lose your sonship, lose your salvation, which are one and the same, right? Well, you can't, because what does the word say? Nothing shall separate us from God's love. Look in verse 6. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to, you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of troubles. And I'll tell you something, we all have them, don't we? You know, when I was a young man, I, I used to hear, I used to go to church and people would talk about, you know, I'll bear your burdens. And I'm like, I was a little impatient with all this talk about burdens and, and challenges. And, but you lead a little life there and you have persecutions. We've all gone through them, being unfairly treated. 
having your heart broken a few times, losing a loved one. We know what trials are. We know what trials are. And we've all tried to bear the burden ourselves, haven't we? And we recognize that it's impossible. It really is. That if you try to bear these burdens yourself, it changes you and it changes you for the worse, not the better. I've always, you know, as a young man, I used to look at older people and notice that the the gleam was no longer in their eye, that they were, you know, blunted and dulled. Life had taken the zest away from them. I remember thinking, I, I don't want to be that way when I get older. The The point here being is that with Christ in your life, with him bearing your burdens, you don't have to lose that zest for life. It's I think it's very important. And I think it's important that we go out and tell people about this, right? It goes on to say, these, these persecutions and trials that you go through, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, honor, and glory when Jesus Christ is revealed. So that's that's interesting. So so persecutions and trials, the, the conflicts that we go through in life, if we approach them from the right perspective, actually bless us. Because what do they do? They increase our faith. And our faith is more precious than gold that perishes, right? You, I mean, you can't go through life without these challenges, but these challenges from a faith point of view actually build your faith that you're looking to God and God always comes through. So you know that in the next trial that you go through, you're not doing it alone. You're going through it with God. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, talking about Jesus Christ, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with the inexpressible and glorious joy. I love that. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. This use of the word soul here is not talking about your eternal soul. This is talking about our lives, okay? A wholeness of our souls, that our souls are fleshed out and whole. Okay, and this is this is going to come up later when we talk about sin. So your soul is robust. It's not depleted. It is filled out and whole. Okay, this is the idea that we're dealing with here. We have our soul filled out. Look at verse 10. It says concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The he predicted there is it predicted, the Spirit of Christ. The idea behind the Spirit of Christ is that it was the Holy Spirit that these Old Testament believers had that pointed to Christ, okay? That the information, the idea came from God to them and indicated the coming of Christ. It's not speaking of Christ in them because it was impossible. It simply means that it's the Holy Spirit through which God revealed the information about Christ. Old Testament has plenty to say about the Spirit of the Lord or the Spirit of God, but there is not one reference in the Old Testament that talks about the Spirit of Christ, okay? So this takes a little bit of understanding. Some people want to jump at this and say, well, see, they had the Spirit of Christ in the Old Testament. No, they didn't, all right? Not in the way that people would, uh, you know, would the connotation behind that. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. 
when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. In other words, they recognized that they were establishing a spiritual legacy for future generations. Is that clear? That these Old Testament believers weren't just living their lives for themselves, but they were building something that would carry through, okay? That's the idea here. Peter is saying to them, you are the recipients of this legacy. Hold your finger here and go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. See, we have to keep this in mind that there, this Bible is a legacy. It's built upon former generations. And it's important for us not only to know the great truths of the New Testament, but we need to understand the Bible as a whole. We need to understand it as a whole, that it builds upon itself. Matthew 13, look in verse 13. It says, Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they, seeing, see not, and hearing, they hear not. Neither do they understand. And he fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their hearts, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things that you see, but have not seen them, and hear those things that you now hear, and have not heard them. Isn't that something? So that's these Old Testament believers. They were looking forward, right? They knew the coming of Christ. They wished to see those things that were coming in Christ, but they never did. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, you are blessed because you get to see and hear these things. Okay, so moving on in First Peter, it says, even angels long to look into these things. Verse 13, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. That's interesting. I think it's interesting. We don't go to church to kind of settle down and get into a rut and one day die. That's not the idea behind going to church or fellowship. We go to church to get motivated and start accomplishing the Lord's work. It says in Peter in another place, gird up your loins, prepare for action, prepare for action. We're supposed to be engaged. And I've said this before in fellowship. If your only effort towards God is, you know, flipping through a couple of pages first thing in the morning time and showing up for fellowship, you're falling way short. You're falling way short in your ministry. You should be engaged and serving the Lord every day, every day. And if you're not serving the Lord, who are you serving? Yourself. So keep that in mind. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled and set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. How about that? There's a great verse for your hope collection, that you set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Isn't that awesome? I love it. I love it. As obedient children, obedient, do not conform to evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Isn't that something? So we all have a past, don't we? We all did things that we regret that we're ashamed of. But it's interesting that if you are not actively engaged in your spiritual life, you will reflexively fall back into those old patterns. The Bible talks about the dog who returns to its vomit, right? And the pig to the mire. 
If we aren't walking by the Spirit, we will reflexively fall back into the flesh. And that's what we're talking about, being obedient children. Obedient children. Hear that, Joshua? Obedient children. I had to, had to take that little shot there. Um, let me read 14 over again. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, who called you? God. Just as he is holy, so be holy in all you do. In all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. It talks about in Romans about uh, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. That means that everything that I do and everything that I think and everything that I speak has got to be according to the Lord's requirement, obligation, that I don't have periods of holiness and periods of, you know, regular me. That the idea here is that you want Christ in your whole being, in your whole mind, in your whole soul, that Christ lives within you. Not just the spiritual reality, but the renewed mind reality. That you're living this stuff out. That you are, you know, when somebody sees you, they see the Father. That's the idea here. As God is holy, we need to be holy as well. And, you know, this is interesting because God can really only fellowship with what he is, right? He can't fellowship with, you know, darkness. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's an important aspect of this whole thing. Uh, hold your finger here and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 2 Corinthians 6. The objective is that we walk in harmony with God. If God is a holy God, we need to be a holy people. We need to be a holy people. 2 Corinthians 6, look in verse 15, it says, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial or Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Then later it says, come out from among them and be separate. We are a separate people. Why do we abstain from the things of the world? Because we're better than they are? No, that's not the heart behind this. It's because we want to walk with our God, and God is not of this world, okay? And that's the thinking here. In verse 17, it says, Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as pilgrims here, strangers as pilgrims, in reverent fear. What is a pilgrim? Joshua, what's a pilgrim? Yes, very good, Joshua. He said someone who goes on a journey, a traveler, right? A traveler, exactly. You know, you mo ask most people, what's a pilgrim? He'll say, he's a guy who wears a funny hat and hangs out with Indians on Thanksgiving. No, a pilgrim is a traveler, a sojourner, right? Somebody who is not at home, in other words. You leave your home and you go on pilgrimage, okay? Now, in a lot of faiths, and it used to be true in Christianity, that was exactly what they did. I mean, the requirement for every Muslim is to go on pilgrimage to Mecca at least one time in their life. Uh, uh, priests were required in Catholicism to go on pilgrimage to Rome one time in their life, I think it was. So the idea, you know, this moving that you move, and the point here is clear, right? Where is our home? It's not here. But if you think about it, I mean, if you're honest with yourselves, most of us treat it like this is our home. That's why, you know, we, we talk about how the hope is the anchor to the soul. One of the big anchoring aspects of the hope is it reminds you that you aren't from this world. You are just traveling through. You're a pilgrim. We're pilgrims here. This isn't our home. 
And when we are on pilgrimage through this life, we spend our time in fear of the Lord, that we care what God says, and we adhere to his commandments. Verse 18, for you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down from, uh, to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, the lamb without blemish or defect. It, isn't that something? So we place value on things, certain things, and they are meaningful to us. They're meaningful to us. And as a result, they tend to stay in your heart, right? You know, treasure, you know, it talks about let not your treasure be of you know, things of this world, but treasure of things that are in heaven, right? Well, our true treasure is that precious blood of Christ, that Jesus Christ died for us. And he was a lamb without blemish and spot. What does this mean? Anybody, anybody know what that means? It means he had no sin. He, had, he didn't have Adam's sin, and he didn't have his own sin, and he was a perfect sacrifice. I mean, think about that. So if you were to bring a deformed animal to be sacrificed, God was offended at that. That means that you weren't bringing your very best. Jesus Christ was the very best that mankind had to offer. He was a lamb without blemish or defect. He didn't have sin. Verse 20, he was chosen or foreknown before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Now, that's an important verse. I want you to think about that. that Jesus Christ was foreknown before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. It's inevitable when I'm online having chats with people that they will talk about pre-existence of Jesus or the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Okay, does everybody understand what that means? It means that Jesus was alive with God, and then Jesus Christ was incarnated into a man. And then when he died, he went back to being what he was in heaven. Okay, that, that's the whole idea. So we talk about this pre-existence of Jesus Christ. This verse says that he was existing pre-existing, but only in the mind of God, only in the mind of God, that he was foreknown. He pre-existed in the mind of God before the creation of the world, but he was revealed in these last times for your sake. Does everybody understand that? That's an important verse. The Greek word here, of course, is pro-genosko. Genosko, we know, means knowledge. And this is pro, this preceding knowledge, right? To know beforehand or to foreknow. Look at verse 21. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. I love that. Our faith and hope are in God. A while back, we used to have a doctrine in this, in this ministry, and I never really agreed with it, uh, that, you know, stop talking about God. Talk about Jesus. And the idea there was we're supposed to go out and talk about Jesus all the time. I talk about God. Jesus is the way to God, right? So, of course, God's got to be in that equation. People want to know God, and Jesus is our way to God. Verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Now, I think that's something that we can all increase in day by day, week by week, month by month as we go through our, our lives. That, yes, I love my brethren, but I need to love them more and more and more. I I need to get better at this love thing, right? And you can see it. 
You can see it in your life. You can see it in how people respond to you. Are you bringing out the best in people or the worst? That's a good test, right? Love works no ill towards his neighbor. So if I'm consistently bringing out the worst in people, maybe I'm not walking in love. Now, an important consideration. Sometimes love as a delayed reaction. Sometimes you have to say uncomfortable things. Initially, it might not bring the best out of somebody, but later on it, it will. It yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness to those who are exercised thereby. So that's something to keep in mind, and that's, that's a more mature walk. But the point here is, is that God is a God of love. And, and what, what I've said in fellowship before is love is the active concern for the growth and life of what we love, right? I've also talked about in this fellowship is that the love of God is loving what God loves, which means you may have somebody who's got kind of a goofy personality, but you love them anyway, because God loves them. There's been a lot of people who've had to put up with a lot from me over the years, and it's not because I have such a, you know, lovely personality all the time, that people were loving me with the love of God because they knew that God loved. And if God loves me, they're to love me too. So that's the point here. And it's that we should be getting better and better at this love thing, okay? Deeply from the heart, verse 23, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So you've got these words, imperishable and enduring. It gives this sense of permanency, right? This idea of permanency, of stability, that these things aren't going to be fleeting. They're not going to be here today and, and gone tomorrow. You know, the world is a very transitory thing, a fleeting and ephemeral thing. Nothing lasts very long at all. I mean, you think about, you know, people talk about the Roman Empire and how the Roman Empire existed for thousands of years. Well, I guess compared to how fleeting governments are in our day and time, that's that's a pretty big accomplishment. But in, in God's purview, a thousand years is nothing. It's a second, right? The point is mankind puts a lot of emphasis on, you know, periods of time like a thousand years and they're nothing to God. We look at our our world today, things appear to be fixed and sturdy, but these things change. I think that's one of the big reasons why you find older people are more inclined to go to church than younger people are. To a young person, they get up, they look around, the world is their oyster. Life is great. I want to experience everything I can experience because this is an awesome thing called life. And then you get older. You've seen a few things. You realize that those things that you felt strong or that the world felt strongly about when you were a kid, they no longer do, right? As a kid, I mean, it was shameful even to talk about homosexuality. And now we have homosexual marriage. Now we're talking about pedophilia, transgenderism in a lifetime, my lifetime. It's crazy. So things change. Things change. People call it progress. I don't call it progress. Remember Billy Graham said this one thing. I always love this quote. He says, we've exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We've rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We've killed our unborn and called it choice. We've neglected to discipline our children and called it building self-esteem. We abused power and called it politics. We coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. We polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. How about that? Things do not last. They change at an alarming rate. 
I think that's something that I wish I could teach my children, but it's something you just have to figure out on your own. Look at verse 24. For all men are as grass, and all their glory is like the flower of the field. Isn't that crazy? When are we going to believe this? I thought about this morning about Isaiah uh, 2, where it says, Stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. On what account is he? (laughs) Or Jeremiah 17, where it says, Cursed is the man that trusts in man and who makes flesh his arm and whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert and shall not see when the good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places of the wilderness in a salt land and not inhabited. Or John chapter 2, where it says, Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in man. How about that? You know, that's one thing I think is is unique to our group. You know, the true Christian remnant group is that we don't trust everything we read in the news. (laughs) We have a very healthy skepticism, and we should. It goes on to say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. If we want endurance, if we want legacy, if we want stability, it is not going to be in mankind. It's not going to be in countries. It's not going to be in philosophies. It's not going to be in religions. It's not going to be in fads or celebrity or any of those other things. If we want stability and truth and longevity, it lies in God and his word, which lives and abides forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Isn't that spectacular? Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. So there, because God's word is forever and ever, right? It liveth and abideth forever. Therefore, rid yourself from all this temporal nonsense. And I liked what it said. It Rid yourself of all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander of every kind. It's amazing how we make allowances for us. I said, you know, I was talking earlier about put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill it, fulfill the lusts thereof. We all like our, you know, favorite little sin, right? We make excuses for it. We tell ourselves, eh, it's not so bad. Everybody sins, right? And we excuse it. Well, it's a hypocrisy, isn't it? We say we, we are the Lord's, but in that area, we aren't. So God wants us to put away deceit. You know that, remember, the sanctifying work of that Holy Spirit is to get in under the layers, get into those nooks and crannies and find you out. That Holy Spirit is there to find you out. Remember what we talked about last week? That's a good thing. We like that. We like that the Holy Spirit finds us out. And then we've got to be ready and willing to give it up when it does. Why? Because we become holy when we do. We have the, the greatness of that Holy Spirit within. That's awesome. But my behavior needs to be holy too, doesn't it? I'm going to tell you a little story here. Last week, I hope you all got the letter that we sent out, the president's letter. So 
I sent out the president's letter and I sat down and I put his, I put heart into it. You know, this was important. I was sharing with people that my grace is sufficient for you, right? For that record in Corinthians about Paul going to God about the, you know, the thorns in his flesh. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you for when you are weak, then you are strong, meaning I'm strong in you. Right. And I, it was just an encouraging letter, you know, we need to be strong as a ministry. We need to rely upon God. I got the nastiest note from somebody. It was just, it was really spectacular. This person called me a whited sepulcher and said I needed to practice what I preach. I've never met this person in my life. What was shocking to me about the whole situation wasn't, you know, I've got a fairly thick skin. I've had people say things to me, but it was the ease at which this person said these things. And this person also didn't bother to sign their name. I had to find out who it was through their email address. And I sent him a nice little response. I mean, really, I, it was it was kind and, and, you know, thoughtful. But the point was, is the ease that they were able to slander somebody they had never met before. This person doesn't know me, never met me, but yet they felt that they should be able to slander me like that after I was just trying to be a nice guy and say this nice thing. So this, I don't say this to, to get your sympathy. I say this to show that we ha all have this in us, the ability to just rip off something, you know, say the nastiest thing to somebody and feel justified doing it. I'm sure this person felt like they were doing God a favor by, you know, saying what they had said to me, but that's not how God works. Remember, we're supposed to be growing more and more in love, deep, heartfelt love from the, you know, from the heart. Sure. If we have a brother or sister who's overtaken in a fall, what are we supposed to do? Minister to that person, right? Minister to the person. But this idea of denunciation has infiltrated Christianity. People, I mean, think about it. Throughout the ages, many people have been burned at the stake by the same spirit, the same spirit. And it was kind of interesting to me that this person was quoting something that Jesus said to the Pharisees to, as a rebuke for how they were behaving. And this person was behaving the same exact way. <laughs> Is that something? I think that's just amazing. Go, hold your finger here and go to James chapter three. I just want to take a, a moment here and just kind of look into this right here. We are not a mean-spirited people. And that means we have to watch our thoughts. You know, I, I catch myself driving down the road, you know, grumbling under my breath because, you know, somebody's a dummy on the road. Okay, well, and my wife points that out to me a lot too, but that's not good. That's not a good thing to do. It's a bad habit. It's a habit that we need to change. We shouldn't be quick to grumble. James chapter three, look at verse 13. It says, Who's, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. That's beautiful. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth of it. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. See, that's not what we want to be part of, right? We don't want that wisdom from this world. That's why we have to come out from among the world and be separate. Verse 17, but the wisdom that does come from above, from heaven, is first of all pure. It's pure. I just love that. It's pure. Then peace-loving. We love peace. 
We don't like contention and strife and emulation. Considerate, considerate. That word considerate there can be translated moderate, right? We are certainly considerate, but moderate. Now, what do, what do we mean by moderate? You know, there's a verse in um, Philippians that says, let your moderation be known among all men. The Lord is at hand. Well, it definitely means gentle, but it also means that you are not given to extremes. You're not given to extremes. The world teaches you, you know, you've got to go extreme to the extremes. Having a reasonable, rational conversation with somebody who is an activist proves my point. An activist is somebody who has given their mind over to the extreme. They can't have a reasonable conversation. The wisdom that is from above is reasonable. It's reasonable. We can discuss things. We can, I can discuss things with a person I totally disagree with, but I can have a peaceful conversation and I can say things like, have you considered this? Or, well, okay, so that's your point. But if that's true, wouldn't that make this true too? You see my point there? That we can work with people. My son had a recent situation where he had a conversation with a person. He was trying to be very reasonable with this person, and this person became extreme and tried to defame him. And it, it's unfortunate. You're going to meet people like that. I told my son, Josh, I said, you know, I'm proud of him for trying to be truthful and to reason with people, but some people aren't reasonable. But that wisdom from above is reasonable. It's reasonable. It's full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial and sincere. What does sincerity mean? That means that you're not talking from your head. You're talking from your heart. You mean what you're saying. You're not just saying things because they sound good. You're saying things because you mean it. What does the word say? That godly sincerity, a godly sincerity that when we talk to people, there is an earnest about our behavior. We're talking not at their personality, but to their souls. We're talking to them. I think this is one of the great witnesses, I, I believe, for a lot of people. That most of, you know, a lot of people go through their entire life, nobody actually talks to them or listens to them. That's our witness. It goes on to say in verse 18, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Don't you want to be a peacemaker? I want to be a peacemaker. I want to be somebody who reconciles man to God. That's the greatest peacemaking, right? That you have that, that hostility between God and man. Man is in abject you know, rebellion against God, and you come in there and you reconcile man to God. What a great thing. That's a peacemaker. Verse 2, it says, like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. I was thinking about this. I was thinking about the sincerity of a baby, right? That we're like newborn babies. You ever look at a baby and uh, and you smile at the baby and that baby gives you that big old toothless smile? And, that, and it is so infectious. Anybody standing around will immediately start smiling. You know, there's no smile like a, a baby's smile. It's the best. It's just the best. I've, I've been, I've seen old people hover over a little baby, baby smiling. And these people look like they haven't smiled in years, but they're looking at that little baby and that, that old, you know, stone looking face all of a sudden breaks into a big smile. It's so beautiful. Verse four, as you come to him, the living stone, the living stone. What are we talking about here? Well, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, the cornerstone. That means that the edifice cannot be built without that cornerstone. 
It says rejected by men, but chosen by God. And there's that word again, precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And interesting. Now, this is particularly meaningful to a Jewish person of that time. Why? The temple, right? The temple was built with stones. And it wasn't just one big stone. It was a lot of little stones that went into building this house. And this is the metaphor, of course, that this house of God was built with many rocks. And Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. That cornerstone is neglected by the world, but is precious to God. See that? Verse 6. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, that stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And the stone that causes men to stumble and a rock to make them fall. Isn't that something? So it's precious to us because we see that Jesus Christ is the the foundation of this whole thing that we have here, this body of Christ. But to somebody who is an unbeliever, Jesus Christ is something he stumbles over, causes him to stumble. And that's why the world hates Jesus Christ. They hate him. You know, there, it's interesting that, um, that Jesus Christ in First Corinthians is referred to as the foundation. No other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid is Jesus Christ. So... Jesus has become a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense for the world. They hate him for it. It goes on to say they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, fellowship. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Isn't that just beautiful? Galatian calls us, the book of Galatian calls us the Israel of God. It goes on and says, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I love that. Verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as aliens or pilgrims and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires, which what? They war against your soul. Remember what we were reading earlier about the salvation of your soul, right? And I said it was the wholeness. That's the thing that gave it content, okay? That's the thing that built you up. Well, here it says that sin wars against your soul. It wars against your soul. This, this verse would make no sense if you were talking about the eternal soul, right? It's talking about who you are, your soul, right? Abstain from those desires. Just say no to them. Refuse. Now, one of the things that I brought up, you know, if you've ever worked with anybody or uh, who has an addiction or you've had an addiction, just saying no isn't going to cut it, right? Unless you do it faithfully, faithfully. There are, you know, anybody who knows working with a person who has an addiction is they'll say no and then they'll reoffend. And then they'll say no and they'll reoffend. The point here being is that we are to say no to these sins over 
and over and over again. And every time we do, we become stronger. We keep saying no. We keep fighting back and we, be, we keep getting stronger. Remember what the word says, resist the devil and he will flee. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to command those who do right. Okay, we're supposed to submit our activism is not civil activism. We are activists, but we're activists for God. We're spiritual activists. We're out there telling people about Jesus Christ. Our activism, our activism is not civil activism. Now, periodically there is a time where the church needs to get involved with the civil discourse, but that's not typically where we go. Okay? Verse 15, for it is God's will, if it for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the brothers of belie- brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but to those who are harsh. This is a good thing to remember when we work in our jobs. Some of us have harsh bosses. Submit. Do right by him. Okay? It's important. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? <laughs> right? You did the wrong thing. You got what was coming to you. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, that is commendable before God. And we're wrapping it up here. Verse 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, that was an interesting thing watching The Chosen, the record where it was John and James, and they wanted to bring lightning down on the Sumerians. And Jesus was like, you you kill those people just because they insulted you? Are you kidding me? And, you know, we tend to be very rash like that. Uh, Jesus wasn't rash like that. Verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, what did he do? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Who judges justly? God does. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Isn't that beautiful? He died on that tree. He he gave his body on that tree that we could die to sin and live to righteousness. Verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, who is Jesus Christ. All right. So that's what I wanted to share. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this teaching. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for being able to live up to this wonderful 
word. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can continue to look to you for our deliverance, the deliverance of our souls. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that in those areas of our lives that we are playing around with the flesh and yielding to the flesh, that, Father, we put our foot down and we make up our minds to stand apart and to forsake our sin. I thank you, Father, for repentance and forgiveness, that, Father, you are faithful and just to forgive. I thank you, Father, for your people, that we are a holy people. Thank you for these things in your Son's name, Jesus. Jesus Christ, amen. Even if it gets me convicted, I'll be on my knees with my hands lifted. If serving you's against the law of man, if living out my faith in you is banned, then I'll stand right before the jury. Saying I believe is out of line. If I'm judged cause I'm gone. I believe 